You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you can pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcast. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories. And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. Today, I speak with Nir Ayel to discuss his experience as an entrepreneur and his two best-selling books. Nir is an expert on behavioral psychology, and he has been able to use that to create many successful businesses and products. Nir is a strong believer in controlling your mind and attention to achieve superior results throughout life. I'm excited to have Nir on the show today because the topics we talk about in this episode help in so many different aspects of life. The topics will help with your general productivity in life, but if you're able to master them, they can also help with a lot of your stock investing, your career, side hustles, business, or even your personal finances. But before we get into the episode with Nir, I have a few quick things I want to go over with you all. You've probably heard me ask you to leave a five-star rating and review for this show on Apple Podcasts in previous episodes, and a lot of people have taken time out of their day to do that. So I want to say thank you. The reviews really help the podcast grow. So to show my appreciation for you all listening and leaving reviews, and to show that I truly do read every single one, 
I'm going to start reading aloud some of the great reviews we're receiving here on the episodes. So one of the recent reviews we received was a five-star rating titled Best Millennial Podcast and was written in by username no name 172-94749. They said, by far the best podcast if you're interested in maximizing your future. The advice and firsthand knowledge given on the podcast is invaluable. Numerous guests have shared their personal strategies to financial success. This podcast and the guests featured enjoy educating people, giving back, and helping others gain financial freedom. And another recent review was also a five-star rating titled, I Love This Show. And it was written in by username Midtown Miss. She said, It is so informative. I appreciate that this podcast is geared towards millennials. Thank you so much to everyone who has left reviews for the show already. And if you haven't already, but you'd like to help the show grow, or possibly even hear your review read on an episode, you can take just 30 seconds and leave a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. As you heard from the two I just read, they can be long or short. They both help the same, so it doesn't have to take a lot of your time. You can also help with word of mouth by sharing the show with your friends and asking them to subscribe. Both of these really help the show grow, and I truly appreciate it. Now, without further delay, let's get into this episode with Nir Ayel. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I'm very excited to have Nir Ayal. Welcome to the show, Nir. Thanks. Great to be here. You've had a lot of experiences and success as an entrepreneur, investor, and author that I'm looking forward to talking about throughout this interview, as well as the specific topics you cover in your two best-selling books. But let's start with your background and who you are. Sure. So I'm what you would call a behavioral designer. And that means that my job is about helping companies design healthy habits in their users through the use of technology. So my first book was really about how to build habit-forming products. The book was called Hooked. And uh, the idea behind the book was to steal the secrets from companies like Facebook and Google and Slack and all of these products that are so engaging, right? The best in the business products when it comes to creating very sticky, engaging products so that the rest of us can build the kind of products and services that improve people's lives by building healthy habits. And that's exactly what's happened. So companies like Fitbod uses the hook model to get people hooked to exercising in the gym. Companies like Kahoot is a company I like so much. I actually invested in them. They use the hook model to get kids hooked onto in-classroom learning. My clients have included companies like the New York Times that I've helped people hook to reading the newspaper every day. And so the idea is, is that we can use this stuff for good. Of course, in the course of my study, a question that always came up and a problem that I had in my own life was what happens when products are designed to be so good that sometimes they're hard to stop using, that sometimes that can lead towards distraction. And so that's the topic of my second book, Indistractable, which is all about how to control your attention and choose your life. And it was because I had this vantage point of understanding the root cause of distraction and uh, how these products are designed to capture so much of your attention. I know also the Achilles heel. And uh, I think I, I now have a framework that took me over five years to develop to help people get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. So it's a, a very tech positive approach to using technology in such a way that it doesn't distract us, but in fact, empowers us to do more. Has social media platforms done such a good job that it's too, it gets their users too hooked? 
I don't think so. I think that uh, today we hear a lot of blame at these companies. And that's, interestingly enough, propagated by their competitors. So where you hear that narrative is you know, in, in the New York Times and, and in the traditional media, the companies that are threatened by the business models of companies like Facebook and Google, because look, they all monetize the same way, right? The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal monetize the same way Facebook does. And that's by selling your attention to advertisers. Big surprise. And so it's not surprising that you know, the, the traditional business model of advertising in the newspapers is threatened by this. And I think you hear a lot of negativity. What you don't hear is an empowering message. You hear about how technology is hijacking your brain and how it's addicting everyone. And there's no doubt it does addict some people, just like alcohol addicts some people. But that doesn't mean everyone who has a glass of beer with dinner is, uh, is an alcoholic, clearly. And so why do we have this ridiculous notion when it comes to technology? We call everything addictive these days. And I think the reason people do that is that because it frees you of responsibility. That if you call something addictive, which is a pathology, right? We never talk about other diseases this way. We never talk about cancer or Alzheimer's this way. And yet the pathology of addiction, we throw on everything that people seem to like a lot. And that's not how addiction works. An addiction is a pathology. Not only is that disrespectful to people who actually struggle with this disease, but it's also by medicalizing something that is a normal behavior what we're doing is essentially sloughing off responsibility because it's much easier to say, oh, you know, Facebook, it's addicting me and Instagram, it's addicting me and YouTube is addicting me because then there's a pusher, there's a dealer, there's someone you can blame. But when it's what it really is, a distraction, oh, well, now I got to do something about the problem. <laughs> and that's a lot less fun. But of course, that is, that is the truth. That is the reality is that, of course, these products are designed to be engaging. I mean, what's the alternative? Should we tell Netflix, hey, Netflix, your shows are too good. I want to watch them all the time. Please make them boring. Hey, iPhone, it's way too user-friendly, Apple. Can you please make your iPhone less user-friendly? Because I, I want to use it. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. And so it's a much healthier approach to understand that, look, this stuff isn't your fault. You didn't invent the iPhone. You didn't invent Facebook. You didn't invent email. But it is your responsibility. And in fact, there's so much we can do to put these technologies in their place so that we can get the best of them without letting them get the best of us. We certainly will dive into the details of what makes something hook users and, and how someone can be indistractable. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit more about your investing and your background a little bit. In your bio on your website, you wrote, although I received most of my education earning an advanced degree from the School of Hard Knocks, I also received an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Which do you think has been more valuable? And is an MBA really a prerequisite for success in business? Oh my gosh, not even close. It's definitely the school of hard knocks is <laughs> by far the more valuable degree, right? Life experience is way, way more valuable in my case, at least than an MBA. And I went to Stanford. It was the only school I applied to. And you know, look, most MBA programs train business administrators, right? People forget what MBA stands for. It's Masters of Business Administration. Most MBAs, there are a couple exceptions out there, do not train entrepreneurs. They train middle managers and consultants and investment bankers. If your goal is to be an entrepreneur, then you certainly don't have to have an MBA by any stretch of the imagination. Success in business, business is a big word and it has many applications. So it depends. If, you, if your success if you desire to have success at a consulting firm or as an investment banker, then yeah, probably an MBA is a requirement. But if it's to be an entrepreneur, then in some ways, I think actually an MBA can hold you back because you know, in many ways, the people who go get MBAs, and I'm speaking as a graduate of the Stanford Graduate School of Business, so I, I, I've been through it. 
it is still about a lot of box checking, right? It's about the person who can take the test and get the score on his GMAT or her GMAT and, and show a record of kind of following the rules. <laughs> but of course, entrepreneurship is about believing that you can break the mold and do something a little different. Because if, if you're going to follow a conventional path, you know, that's, that's not the path to success in entrepreneurship. You have to believe that you can do something different, that you can offer a service that hasn't been offered before. You can offer a customer experience that hasn't been offered before. You can do something that other people haven't done. It's, you kind of have to believe that there's a $100 bill on the sidewalk and nobody's picked up. You know, that most people walk by that $100 bill and say, oh, it must be fake. And they don't even bend over to pick it up. An entrepreneur says, wait a minute, <laughs> maybe there really is a $100 bill there in the street. Because once in a while that happens. And, and that's, that's what entrepreneurs have to see. When you start a business, it's about envisioning that there is a potential future that other people just don't see. And that takes a lot of what we call in Yiddish chutzpah. You have to really believe that you can see the future and other people don't. Yeah, entrepreneurship is almost the exact opposite where rather than fitting into the boxes, you're trying to stand out from the boxes and do something different. Yeah. And I will qualify it though. I mean, it, you know, I'm talking in broad generalizations. There's there's a lot of entrepreneurs who, you know, open a franchise and a franchise tells you exactly what to do. <laughs> so, that doesn't require I don't think a lot of breaking any mold, but quite the opposite. I'm talking about the kind of entrepreneurship where you have real outsized returns where you're you have what's called an unfair business advantage that you have a competitive moat because other people don't see the opportunity. So this, we're talking about you know venture scale type returns, startup styles where you know startup is by definition a business that starts small and grows up, start up and gets really really big. As opposed to you know you can be an entrepreneur and, and start a restaurant. Not that there's anything wrong with those businesses, but that's not the kind of business you know starting a restaurant or a dry cleaner, you know perfectly respectable profession. But that's not. I don't think that's the kind of entrepreneurship per se we're talking about right now. I don't think. Now, a lot of people listening to the show are interested in investing. So let's talk a bit about your angel investing. Mm -hmm. First, what is angel investing? Yes. Yeah, so angel investing is when you as an individual invest your money into companies without any kind of what's called institutional backing. So typically, this will be in the form of a venture capital fund or some kind of private equity firm where the what's called the LPs, the limited partners, is a, uh, a large endowment or a retirement, like a pension fund, for example, might put in money into a venture capital fund or a private equity firm. And then the venture capitalists are the individuals who deploy that money, as opposed to an angel investor. An angel investor, it's their money, <laughs> right? And so they are acting on their own with their funds to back specific companies. And so that's what I do. I just invest with my own cash. What type of companies are you looking to invest in? And why have you chosen the specific companies that you have so far? So every investor, I think, needs... When it, when it comes to angel investing... And by the way, angel investing is something that you can only legally do as an accredited investor, which means you need a certain liquid assets or a certain type of net worth or a certain income threshold. And it's something that I do before I tell you how to do it or, or what I do as an angel investor. To me, it's the funny money portion of my portfolio. So I want to make sure people realize like this is not how I plan to, you know, make it to retirement. Most of my savings is not in startups. Most of my savings is in a well-diversified mutual fund. That's the vast majority of, of my holdings. But there is some proportion of my portfolio that I say this is the the high risk capital. And so it's you know, when I write a check to an angel as an angel investor to a startup, 
in my mind, that money is a zero, right? As soon as I write that check, in my mind, it's gone. Thankfully, I've made about 25 investments to date and I've made a great return. But many of you know, some companies have returned 20x, some have returned zero. And I, I did lose my money. But thankfully, you know, the way that these type of investments work is you're looking for some of those 10x, 20x returns to pay back some of the losers. That's kind of the game you play. But again, this is like a small part of, it should be a small part of one's portfolio because it's a very high risk investment. And so what I try and do is to invest in companies that meet my special area of expertise. So my competitive advantage as an angel investor is that I have deep expertise into how to build engaging products and services. So there are many industries I just won't invest in because I'm no smarter than anybody else. So I don't know much about crypto. So I don't invest in it because I don't have any special expertise. I don't invest in pharmaceuticals. I don't have any special expertise in that. What I do have special expertise in is how to build habit-forming products. And so I look for companies with business models that depend upon repeat user engagement that depend upon forming habits. That's where I think I have a special area of expertise and where I can be helpful to the entrepreneurs, as well as being able to spot opportunities where others may not. What have been some of those opportunities that you've spotted so far that have gone on to be a great success? Yeah. So there's been, there's been thankfully, several now. Companies like Eventbrite. I mean, most folks have heard of Eventbrite by now. It's publicly traded. So I invested in, in that company. I invested in a company, Kahoot, which is the world's largest educational software. If you have school-aged kids, chances are your kids use Kahoot. They went public recently. I'm an investor in the company that makes Marco Polo, which is an alternative social network that I, I really love because it's providing... You know, We talk about some of the negative aspects of social media. And so I think the solution is a better social network. And so Marco Polo happens to be a, a product that actually third-party studies have found increases people's sense of well-being and connection when they use. And so I'm, I'm really proud to be an investor there. They're consistently in the top 20 apps on the Apple App Store. Thankfully, there's been many in the, in the past several years. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort 
with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I know you were also a successful entrepreneur yourself, having sold two tech companies. How has what you learned being a successful entrepreneur yourself helped you be an angel investor? I definitely cut my teeth on what's really required to run a business. In fact, many times when I look at who I'm going to invest with in terms of the entrepreneur, I'm looking for the traits I know will be valuable. So, you know, open mindedness and yet stick to itiveness. Entrepreneurship is about a lot of paradoxes, right? We're told never quit, but also know when to cut your losses. We're told to be open minded and yet stick to our guns, right? We're, we're, we're constantly told these paradoxes. And I think it's, it's a delicate balance. And so, one of the things that I think I always look for is a person with a growth mindset. And I'm sure some folks have read this this book by Carol Dweck, which is all about this idea of growth mindset, that there's there's what's called a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And fixed mindset people, they say, I am what I am, right? Like, don't try and change me. I can't change. This is who I am. And that to me is kryptonite. I don't want to touch people like that. I don't want to be friends with people like that. I don't want to associate with people like that. And that's really the kind of person I look to invest in, the kind of person I want to be friends with is the kind of person who believes that it's not my innate traits that define who I am and what I do. It's my ability to learn. And so I think an entrepreneur needs to be a voracious learner. And so I gleaned that insight from being an entrepreneur. And so many times when I thought I was absolutely right, that this is the way things were going to be, you know, sometimes it panned out, but many times it didn't pan out. <laughs> and so you need to be the kind of person who can, what's that saying that Mark Andreessen says, strong convictions loosely held. I think that's the kind of person I I like to invest in. I know that that is so valuable in the marketplace. So why do some products really capture a widespread attention while really just some others flop? Can you walk us through your four-step process in your hook model? Sure. So the hook model is an experience designed to connect the user's problem with the company's product with enough frequency to form a habit. And so The reason habits really matter for business is that it's a competitive moat. Many of your listeners, they're looking to find great investments. And so one of the things that Warren Buffett always talks about is a competitive moat. Is there a way that you can build a defensible moat around your business so that the competition doesn't come in and steal your margins? And so that moat can take a lot of different forms. It can take intellectual property. It can take a brand. It can take economies of scale. And one of the ways you can build a competitive moat is habit. 
So Warren Buffett talks about how he invested in Coca-Cola because he found that he was in the habit of drinking Coca-Cola every day. And you know, if you think about companies like Google, for example, you know, Google owns about 80, 90% of the search engine traffic. Why? Is it because they're so much better than the number two search engine Bing? Is Bing just a laggard? They they can't make a better product. Why aren't people using Bing? Well, it's not because the product is not as good. In fact, third-party studies have shown that when you show the search results of Google versus Bing side by side, and you strip out the branding so people don't know which is which, it's a 50-50 preference split. People literally can't tell the difference. When was the last time you said to yourself, hmm, I wonder who makes a better search engine. Maybe I shouldn't Google this. Maybe I should try Bing. Probably never. Because once a habit is formed, and this is why habits are so incredibly important for business, is that once a habit is formed, you don't even give the competition a chance, right? Think about that. Like, you know, every other product out there, if there isn't some kind of competitive advantage or habit formed, then what people typically do is they shop based on price and features and price and features. And so that, of course, degrades margins. But a business that forms a habit can have incredible margins because people don't even give the competition a chance. They just do it, they Google it. And so that's why habits are so important for certain businesses. And the way you form a habit is these four basic steps is you have what's called a trigger. You have an external trigger and an internal trigger. So an external trigger is a ping, a ding, a ring, something in your environment that prompts you to action, like a notification on your phone, for example. Then you have what's called the action phase. And the action phase is defined as the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. So it's something as simple as opening an app and scrolling a feed. Then you have what's called a variable reward. This is where there's some kind of element of surprise, uncertainty, some kind of mystery into what you might find when you use the product. So scrolling a feed or pushing the play button on a video or looking at a dashboard, anything that provides intrigue and mystery, this variable reward. And then finally, the investment phase, which is where the user puts something into the product to make it better and better with use. And this actually, this last phase is really unprecedented because If you look at the history of manufacturing, it was always really hard to customize and retool products for customers, right? Henry Ford is quoted as saying, you can have any color of Model T as long as it's black. And the reason he said that is because at the time, it was really hard to give you one car that's purple and you one car that's blue and you one car that's yellow. That was really hard to do. Well, today, because of interactive technologies, we are able to custom make a product of one for every single user. So when you use Pinterest or Instagram or Facebook or you know, any number of a Google, you are customizing the service based on your investment of data. And that data improves the service with use. And that's a really big deal because if you think about every other product out there, things that are made of atoms as opposed to things that are made of bits, everything in the physical world depreciates with wear and tear, right? Your furniture, your clothing, your car, it all loses value. It depreciates with wear and tear. But habit-forming products do not depreciate. They appreciate. They get better and better the more they're used because of this concept I call stored value. So the more we use the products, the better they become. And so what this does is that it makes the product more and more valuable to the user. Also, the investment also loads the next trigger so that when you invest in the product, for example, let's say you like something on Facebook or comment or share or you know anything that you put into the product, what you're also doing is you're loading the next trigger. Every time you do that, you're giving the company a reason to reach out to you and say, hey, here's a reason to come back. Somebody commented on your photo. Somebody liked something. Somebody did something with your content. Come back, check it out. And so what's happened? They've reloaded the external trigger 
prompting you through these four steps of the hook cycle, trigger, action, reward, and investment once again. So that's, that's how the hook model basically works until through successive cycles through these hooks, you no longer even require these external triggers. Eventually, you don't use a product because of the external trigger. It's not because of the ping or ding. You're using it because of an association with what's called an internal trigger. So now you're using it because of an emotion. When you're feeling lonely, maybe you check Instagram. When you're uncertain, you Google. When you're bored, you check Reddit, Pinterest, stock prices, ESPN, right? All of these products and services you're looking at, you're going to because of these uncomfortable emotional sensations. So imagine what happens to a business model when customers come back on their own, right? You don't have to spend money on advertising. You don't have to annoy them with spammy messages. They start using the product because they trigger themselves. And that's when a habit is formed. Yeah. I mean, all of that is so, so great. I think Google is probably, in my opinion, one of the best ones because like you said, with the example of Bing, it just you don't even give it any consideration. You just always go directly to Google and it's it's a verb now. You know, I'm yeah. gonna go Google something. I'm gonna go, you know, it, it's just Google has has done such a good job with this that it it is the only thing. It has eliminated all of its competition. So if you were an entrepreneur building a brand new platform from scratch today, what would be the most important features you'd include to really hook a user? So it would be these four basic steps. And that's something you can do in the very early stages. So where the hook model is most useful is in two stages. Either very early days, if you have a product that has a business model that requires a habit. By the way, not every business needs a habit. For example, if you sell car insurance, people will never use car insurance habitually. It's just not a product that is used with sufficient frequency to ever form a habit. The problem is you, you have to have some other competitive advantage, right? If you don't, then you're always compete on price and features. So Geico says, 15 minutes will save you 15% on car insurance. And then the next year, somebody else comes out and says, oh yeah, well, 12 minutes will save you 20% on car insurance, right? There's this constant battle of tooth and nail based on prices and features. And that's a battle that leads to very low margins. Whereas if you have a product that has this competitive advantage of a habit, then as you said, people don't even consider the competition. They turn straight to it. So what I would recommend is either you know the two phases where using the hook model is very useful is very, very early days. That if your business model needs a habit, then you have to have a hook. So not every business model needs a habit, but every business model that does need a habit has to have a hook. So in the very early days, that's a really good place to take out the hook model and say, hey, does our idea, does, you know, even if it's a napkin sketch idea, does it have the four phases of the hook model built in? The other phase that using the hook model is very valuable is if your business model requires a habit and it's already up and running. It's an established product, it's an established company, but people aren't sticking around. Why aren't they sticking around? You know, so many companies throw so much money at customer acquisition and it pains me how few companies spend on customer retention. That it's so much this has been known forever now that it's way more advantageous to keep a customer than to acquire a new customer. You've already spent all that money acquiring the customer. So it behooves us as business owners, if your product requires a habit, but people aren't coming back, that's a really good place to take out the hook model and see, hey, does our user experience conform to these four critical steps? And if not, where is it deficient? So it becomes a, a diagnostic tool for you to figure out and diagnose you know, what's missing in our hook model. That dynamic about keeping current customers versus bringing in new customers is so intriguing to me right now because I was actually going through that recently in my personal life where I was with a, a phone carrier for a long time and I was looking to upgrade my phone, but they wouldn't do anything for me. 
they had no offers for current customers. But if you were a new customer, they'd give you all kinds of great deals. And so what did we do? We ended up switching carriers to a different one and we, got, yeah. we took advantage of all those great deals. Yeah. You said, screw them, right? <laughs> right. They lost you because of price and features. What they should have done is figured out a way to keep you engaged by creating a habit that you wouldn't want to switch away from. Right. And I was more than happy to stay. I was, you know, I was happy with their service. It was just, you know, it kind of blew my mind that they weren't willing to do that for a customer that they've already spent all that money to acquire. Yep. Now they're going to spend 10 times more trying to get you back. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Now, so are there specific features, you know, of course, it's going to depend on the platform and you know, really what the goal of the business is. But are there certain generic features that really make a platform be hooked? Like I remember hearing an interesting story about the invention of the like button or even the comment button on Facebook. And I know how a lot of that drives you know, not addiction, but just people wanting to come back to the platform. Are there any features similar to that that a business that's building an online platform should implement? Well, it's never so simple. You know, I think I think in the media and in the business press, we people look for the magic bullet and they like saying, ah, it was this and it's never this. It's always a little bit more complicated than that. But there is this basic four-part model. That's about as simple as I can make it without making it simplistic, is that you have to have all four of these steps. You have to have the trigger, the action, the reward, and the investment. You need all four. If one of those things is deficient, you're not going to create a habit-forming product. I think kind of one of the things that, that gets some attention is this idea of what's called a variable reward. And this comes out of the work of B.F. Skinner, the, the famous psychologist who father of what we call operant conditioning. He is famous for these experiments where he took a pigeon, put them in what we now call a Skinner box with a little disc in the box. And every time the pigeon pecked at the disc, they would receive a little reward, a little food pellet. And at first, he could train the pigeon to peck at the disc whenever the pigeon was hungry. By the way, this experiment didn't work if the pigeon wasn't hungry. But as long as the pigeon had what's called an internal trigger, as long as there was this hunger, then the pigeon would peck at the disc and get a reward. But then one day, Skinner actually ran out of these food pellets. He literally didn't have enough of them one day. So he couldn't afford to give a pellet to the pigeon every single time. So he only could give the, the pellet to the pigeon every once in a while. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc and nothing would happen. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was when there was this variability, this intermittent reward, that's when the rate of response increased. So the pigeon would peck more often when there was variability to the reward schedule. And so we see this phenomenon in all sorts of things that come in. The classic case is gambling, right? What makes a slot machine so engaging is that it's a game of chance. There's uncertainty around what you might win. The same goes for why do we like watching spectator sports? And why are people obsessed with fantasy football or the World Cup or you name the sport, you'll find people who are you know, what we call fanatics because they are entranced by a ball or a puck bouncing around a pitch or a court. I mean, it's ridiculous when you zoom out, but it's very enjoyable, right? People love it. And there's no, I would argue there's nothing wrong with it. It's a perfectly fine pastime. You know, the same goes for why do we like reading books? We like fiction because the uncertainty, right? How is the story going to end? How is the trouble going to resolve? Why do we like going to movie theaters? It's, it's about you know, the ending. What's going to happen? We don't know. It's no fun when someone tells you how a movie ends. You, wanna, you want the surprise. You want the, the uncertainty. All the way to our, one of our core drivers around, around the sex drive. It's about you know, romance is about variability. It's about uncertainty. That's what gives us those butterflies in our stomach. It's all about uncertainty. The news. Oh my God. 
you know, the, the media is in the business of keeping you hooked to watching the news and reading the news because of the uncertainty. You know, the first three letters of news is N-E-W. What's new? That's what keeps us engaged. It's all about this variability, this mystery. So let's talk about maintaining that hook because I'm thinking specifically of two examples of companies that I think built platforms that really hooked users, or at least I thought they did, but they still failed. Those platforms that I'm thinking of are pretty recent and they're Vine and Yik Yak. And they were both social media platforms that were very addictive and had user bases that would use it, you know, multiple times a day, every single day, you know, day after day, but they still failed. So once a business has built a product or service that really hooks its users, how can it really sustain that? Well, it's it's about maintaining the hook model. It's about making sure that these parts stay intact. Look, just because you have a habit doesn't mean somebody can't come along and steal that habit away if you don't protect it. I mean, we see this today happening with Facebook, the $300 billion behemoth. We see that Facebook proper is deteriorating. It's not giving people what they want. It's not scratching their itch. And so the first place to start when forming a habit is with that internal trigger is what's the uncomfortable emotional state that we turn to out of habit, that we get relief from the use of the product. And for for Facebook, the best investment they ever made was in Instagram, because we see that Instagram is giving many people a better alternative to the dumpster fire that is the Facebook newsfeed. It doesn't work for a lot of people anymore. It's filled with political nonsense and stupid videos and memes and things that don't make it pleasurable for people. And if it doesn't scratch their itch, they look elsewhere. So they go to TikTok, they go to Instagram, they go to Snapchat, they go somewhere else. And, and that's exactly what's happening. So you know, it's, it's a potential competitive advantage. But over time, if you're not careful, somebody else can steal those customers away. Now, that's hard to do, <laughs> right? Many times that's very difficult to actually accomplish because of this habit. And so you know, companies will spend a lot of money defending that habit. This is exactly why Facebook spent a billion bucks on Instagram, which at the time, it seemed like a fortune. I remember when, when he bought Instagram and then later WhatsApp, everybody laughed at Zuckerberg. We, we thought, oh my God, did that guy get, get creamed? What a, what a ripoff. And of course, you know, today, Instagram isn't worth a billion, it's worth 40 billion. So it was, a, it was the, the acquisition of the century for sure. We oftentimes see that, you know, I had a professor in, at Stanford by the name of Andy Ratcliffe, who used to say, early is the same as wrong. You know, many times this happens, right? How many social, you know, Facebook was not the first social network. There were many social networks. Google was not the first search engine. You know, Apple has made nothing really new, right? There were MP3 players before the iPod. There were certainly laptop computers before the iMac. There were, you know, smartphones before the iPhone. What they did, you know, it's, it's not, so it's not about being the first mover. It's oftentimes about being the last mover when you can create those customer habits and that creates consumer loyalty. And so many times what we see is you have a product like Vine that was good, but not good enough. It wasn't sticky enough. And I would say that you know, what the massive success of TikTok is kind of an iteration on Vine. They did some key things that make it a much better product. For example, I think the big innovation with TikTok versus Vine, even though there's, there's a lot of similarities in terms of the content format, is the investment phase. TikTok's big innovation is that every time you watch anything on TikTok, they are collecting data on you. How long you watch, what you watch, did you react to it? Did you do anything? Did you comment? Did you like? Did you do anything? And that will feed the algorithm to feed you more interesting content as opposed to Vine didn't have that capability. They just fed you whatever was popular. Well, TikTok makes a product of one for every single user based on what you like. And that's an incredibly powerful way to form a consumer habit is that that whole idea of stored value. Yeah, I absolutely love that. 
dynamic that you mentioned about Facebook not being the first social media because I talk about that all the time. There's times where I talk about different business ideas with other people and they might be like, well, somebody else is already doing that. And I tell them, that's okay. How many other companies or look at MySpace before Facebook, right? They were out yep. there, they were dominating the market and then Facebook came in and look at what they've done. You know, They built yeah. it way bigger than MySpace ever could have been. So, and that's where the hook model is actually super helpful in that is that you can look at a reason, a rationale why the existing incumbent isn't doing something to optimize their hook model, right? So I would argue that the big innovation that Facebook had over MySpace was that it was just so much easier to get going, right? Remember on MySpace, you had to customize your page and Facebook made it just super simple, right? Like everybody gets the same blue and white profile. All you can put is in your, is your picture. Everything else is text. That is part of the action phase of the hook, that if you can make something easier to do, people can become more likely to do it. And so it becomes a, a way for you to analyze a product and say, hmm, okay, I know there are incumbents in the market. How is this new market entrant improving the hook model? And how will that ultimately lead to them capturing a greater share? And to your point about TikTok, they definitely have a much superior algorithm to providing relevant content for its user than Vine did. Because I know when I go on TikTok, if I like a video or comment on it or follow somebody, that next video is almost the exact same thing with just a different person. And then yeah. if, if you like it again, it's almost the exact same thing right after. And it's almost right. to a point where it's too good. But yeah, they've definitely really got that algorithm down. And let me tell you, they're listening to that too, right? If they say, oh my gosh, now we're feeding you too much stuff that's the same, right? Now it's too predictable. They're gonna, they have to change that up as well. But I think the, the more important thing is that they have a process to do that. Almost no companies, and I think this is going to change. This is, I think, something that's going to be on the horizon for the next decade for sure. Every company will be in the business of dynamic improvements to the user experience. So the fact that, okay, maybe it's not perfect over at TikTok, but the fact is they have this incredible ability to customize the product, whereas most companies say, well, this is our product. Here's our landing page. Here's the user experience. It's the same for everybody. I think that's going to certainly change the next decade. Yeah, I completely agree. Now let's shift away from businesses and products and let's talk more about individual people. After reading about your concept of being indistractable, I set a lot of my 2020 goals around that concept. So what does it mean to be indistractable and why is it just so important in today's world? Yeah, I think that being indistractable is the skill of the century. That we know that to do our best work, we have to work without distraction. When it comes to our relationships, you know, psychologists tell us that loneliness is as detrimental to our health as smoking and obesity. And we are going through this loneliness crisis in this country. And then we know when it comes to our kids, what type of terrible example we're setting for our kids when what they see of us is the top of our heads as we're checking our devices. And so you know, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. It's only going to become more distracting, which is why it's so important to not only adopt these skills for ourselves, but to teach them to our children, because this is, this is going to be an increasingly important skill. To answer your question, to be indistractable, it's a made-up word, and the beauty of making up a word is you can define it any way you want. And so the definition of becoming indistractable means you're the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. It's about living with personal integrity, because you know I wrote this book first and foremost for me. I was struggling with distraction. I was with my daughter, and I would check my phone. I would start to do some work, and you know, check email or Google something instead of actually doing what I said I was going to do. And so day after day, I would lie to myself. Right? I would say I was going to go to work out. I didn't. I would say I would eat right. I wouldn't. I would say I was going to work on that big project and I would procrastinate yet another day. And the more I dug into this problem, the more I learned that there are so many 
productivity techniques out there that really backfire. And so the book is full of myths that are overturned. For example, the myth of the to-do list. I think for most people, a to-do list is nothing but a reinforcer of what a loser you are. And that's certainly happened to me. Like, you know, I followed this mantra that everybody has in the productivity industry that, okay, the to-do list, it's all about the to-do list. That's how you get things done. The fact of the matter is when you don't finish everything on your to-do list, what you're doing is reinforcing an identity. And we know that long-term behavior change is identity change. We have to see ourselves differently. That's how we become different people. What a to-do list typically does for most people, because most people don't use a to-do list correctly, is that it reinforces, hey, loser, you still didn't do what you said you were going to do. And that backfires. <laughs> and because you know, if you're anything like I was, I would have you know, all these things on my to-do list. And even after I've had a, a productive day, I'd still recycle you know, half that to-do list from day to day to day, and I wasn't getting what I would do done. And so at the core of becoming indistractable is living with personal integrity. It's just being the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do. That's the kind of person people want to work with, right? People want to hire that kind of person. People want to marry that kind of person. People want to be friends with that kind of person. The kind of person who does what they say they're going to do. So why do our personal relationships really depend on this? Well, so we know that relationships are incredibly important to our psychological well-being, that one of our core human needs is to understand others and to be understood ourselves. But of course, we can't do that unless we have time to connect with people. And what we've seen in this country is a collapse in the amount of time that people have for these planned shared experiences. And this is not something that Facebook did. This is not something the internet did. This is something that Robert Putnam talked about in his book, Bowling Alone, in the 90s. It's a long-term trend. What's happened in this country is that we used to have all of these civic groups, right? The Kiwanis Club, the Bowling League, the church group. Those organizations used to have time on people's calendars. And today, you know, particularly millennials and younger, don't do this kind of stuff. And it's really to our own detriment. And we think we're connected because we have these social media accounts. And I think social media is great. I mean, I, I love my social media accounts. I don't give them up. I love these technologies. They keep me in touch with people I would have no way of keeping in touch with. But social media is a supplement, not a replacement for real life interaction. And so what we have to do is to start bringing back some of this real world interaction. And so I show folks exactly how to do that. And it, it is critically important. I think you know, we are, are suffering in the midst of this loneliness epidemic. And I think it's only going to get worse unless we make time to live out our values of being close with other people in the real world. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. So this is an interesting idea that I, I was reading and learning about from the book. And I'm curious to hear this from you. How do distractions at work prove to actually be a symptom of a dysfunctional company culture rather yeah. than a, a personal issue? And how can it be fixed? So half the book is about what you as an individual can do, right? It's about these four steps to becoming indistractable that anyone can do for themselves. But then, of course, I'm not that naive to think that the problem is just us. If you get a phone call from your boss at 9 p.m. on a Friday night, and your boss is calling you on the phone and saying, I need you to do this or that, is the phone to blame? Is the technology that your boss used to call you to blame? No, of course not. It's clearly that you're boss and you work at a company with a kind of culture with that's acceptable. So distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. That what my research reveals is that distraction in the workplace, we love to blame the technologies, but in fact, the tool that is misused by a crappy company culture. And the real problem is not the problem of distraction. The real problem is that we can't talk about the problem. <laughs> That turns out to be the real source of the problem. Because once companies have an environment where people can talk about this problem, they fix it. It's just when companies can't talk about it. If you work in a kind of work environment that doesn't have what we call psychological safety, this is the condition where people can talk about their concerns without fear of retribution, without fear of getting fired. When companies have an open dialogue, it's actually not that hard to fix these problems. And I tell people exactly how to do it in the book, but it requires a company culture where people can actually you know, raise their hand and say, hey, this isn't really working for me. Can we talk about this? It's, it's sort of like a dysfunctional family, right? Where everybody knows there's a big problem, but the family can't talk about it. And so we can't fix the actual problem. If you had to give just one final piece of advice for someone who's really trying to better themselves when it comes to being indistractable, what would that piece of advice be? Yeah. So the piece of advice I would give people 
is to understand that you know what distraction really is. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Meaning traction is anything that you plan to do with your time. So there's nothing wrong with checking Facebook or YouTube or Google or watching sports or Netflix. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. As long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values, not based on someone else's. And conversely, just as anything can be traction, anything can be distraction. So even the stuff we think is productive, right? You sit down at your desk and you say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. Now I'm going to get to work. Here I go. But let me check email first. Well, that email is just as much of, of a damn distraction from what you really want to do. <laughs> so anything can be a distraction. Anything can be traction. The difference is intent. You see, doing things that you didn't plan to do, getting distracted is an impulse control problem, right? That's fundamentally what all this is. The reason we get distracted by things is because of these internal triggers. If you can't sit down at a business meeting and check your phone every five minutes, the problem isn't your phone. If you can't sit down with some friends without seeing what's happening on Instagram, I'm telling you, the problem is inside you. It's not your device. You're looking for something. You're desperate for this you know, emotional pacification like a baby sucking on a binky. Right? That's what we're looking for. And so if we don't deal with that fact, if we don't understand that we are looking for escape from our discomfort, we're always going to be distracted by one thing or another. And so I think where most productivity books fail is that they don't acknowledge why we get distracted. We all know what to do. Who doesn't know what to do? Come on. You want to lose weight? You're telling me you don't know how? Google it. You want to get better at your job? Come on. You, you know how. You know how to have better relationships, how to get better at your job. The problem is not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't know how to stop getting distracted from doing the things we don't know how to do. And so that's really what it's about. It's about understanding what gets in your way and then realizing that that is a superpower. That is the skill, that the macro skill to help us do anything by empowering ourselves to use these tactics to help us become indistractable so that we can do what we say we're going to do. Nir, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really loved our conversation. I know the audience is going to get a ton of value from it. Where can they go to connect with you further? Yeah, thank you. So my blog is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. And if you want to check out the book, you can go to indistractable.com. And at indistractable.com, there's all kinds of free resources, including an 80-page workbook that you can get for free. Uh, you can get that also at nearandfar.com. I'll be sure to put links to all the different resources we mentioned throughout the episode, as well as the resources Near just mentioned in the show notes. So you guys can go check those out. And as always, I'll put links to different books about this topic in the show notes so you guys can go read those if you're interested in learning more. Nir, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Robert. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.